Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by one of the earliest guests ever on the Bulwark Podcast, one of our good friends, Benjamin Wittes from Lawfare. Good to have you back, Benjamin. Hey, good to be here. Okay, so we we have to start with with all of this. I was going to start talking about the various developments in the presidential race, including the decision by the debate commission to um, give the moderator a mute button for the president of the United States, which I thought I was want a, a mute you know, button. Can you imagine that feeling of power you would get if you could shut Donald Trump up by pressing a button? I did that once. Literally, I did really? that when, when really? he called in my radio show. And um, I knew that I was not going to be able to get my questions out unless I had my producer mute him. And and by God, we, we muted him. And, and, we did and, it. And can I ask a question? Did that feel sure. great? It felt necessary. Because I, like, I feel like if I could have one time in my life when he was just talking and I could silence him, not just for myself, but for everyone else, so that nobody could hear Donald Trump because I pushed a button, that would really make me feel whole as a human being again. Okay, so are you one of these guys, have you ever had like the remote control in your hand and you've been muting and unmuting on TV and, and somebody else is in the room and, and you you almost instinctively try to mute them? Have you ever like aimed, aimed the, the controller at your wife and tried to mute her? No, I'm not never- like a shut people up in general, but the idea when I, when I read that they were going to have a mute button for the moderator... For, for the presidential debate, my reaction to it is I want the mute button. Yeah, yes. But this this was, this was a good decision. Okay, so I was going to start off by talking about that. And then I realized that, you know, since we're on the subject of mute buttons and uh, microphones and cameras, could we just I know give out the going, life? I, I, look, everyone's <laughs> going there. And I know, I know that some people are going to say, you two are better than this. And, and I don't want to speak so to you, Benjamin. We are so not better than this. I am not better than this. So, so I have a question. Um, the Does the only- work now have a pants policy? Well, I'm wearing shorts. Yeah, so am I. Just so you know. Okay, um, so we, we, we do lots of Zoom stuff. I mean, you and I both do lots of Zoom stuff all, all the time. And I guess the life lesson here is, number one, just assume all microphones are hot. Number two, all cameras are on. And number three, listen carefully. Because if somebody says that you're doing an election simulation, that can be misunderstood, apparently. Yes, election one letter off in each simulation. word. Right. Um, I, I told don't myself know. I wasn't going to do that. Can, can I, so Jeffrey Tubin. Yeah. Stupid question, yeah. though. Isn't it surprising that in the age of coronavirus, where we're all isolated and we're all doing uh, uh, all these meetings remotely. It has taken seven months of this for Me Too to merge with coronavirus and us to have our first celebrity Zoom sex scandal. That's true. You would think that it would have happened in May or so, right? Like when people were April, still getting, a little, getting a, little, a little frisky, a little bored, lots of camera time, right? Right. Bad things start happening. Instead, we all got yeah, a <laughs> room raider and, um, you know, and we, it was all very wholesome for a while. This was the kinder, gentler era. 
<laughs> when we would obsess over the decorating in our rooms, whether you get an eight or nine. Exactly, or whether there's a pineapple or not. So this story is so bad. And, and I do have a question I'm leading up to on this. You know, Jeffrey Tubin, well-known legal scholar, best-selling author. He writes for The New Yorker, CNN. They're doing the, and I don't want to mispronounce this, election simulation on Zoom. So all of the hotshot stars, The New Yorker are on, apparently some people from NPR and everything. And during one of the breaks, he he decides to, Basically, shall we say a little bit of a, uh, you know, DIY, do it yourself. And um, I thought, thought he had turned it off. I guess the question is, that is so embarrassing. I mean, on on the pyramid of like humiliating, self-destructive things to do. Do you, do you come back from that? I mean, there's, there's always a second act, but do you come back from that? I, I do have to say that like if I made a list of the 10 most embarrassing things that, you know, like you could have anxiety dreams about being caught masturbating in front of the staff of the New Yorker is like so extreme that it would uh, uh, like never have occurred to me to mention. It's like so out there in, um, uh, in sort of cosmic embarrassment. Um, it's like yeah, a biblical it's curse. It's, it's, it's worse than a biblical curse, right? It's like saying, I hope you go blind. I hope you, da, da, I hope you are caught masturbating in front of the staff of the New Yorker someday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's... I mean it, it does have a, a, a poetic quality. Uh, that said, look, Jeffrey Tubin has come back from a fair bit. Um, people yeah. don't remember this uh, about him, but he actually got his start, uh, speaking of special counsels, uh, as somebody who wrote a uh, uh, who worked for Lawrence Walsh uh, in the Iran Contra investigation, uh, uh, resigned and then wrote a tell-all book about Lawrence Walsh uh, that portrayed him as an out-of-control special prosecutor, uh, and uh, so his career kind of started with a a, a betrayal um, and. You know, he's had a prior sex scandal as well. And so, uh, look, I don't, I don't think we've had, because we haven't had a sort of Zoom sex scandal before among major media personalities, um, I don't think we know actually whether somebody can recover from this, uh, particularly somebody who is uh, a... Um, uh, you know, quite a survivor as a, as a presence. Um, and, you know, that said, if it were me, I would crawl into a dark yeah, hole and stay yeah. there for a very long time. Oh, yeah. That, that's, that's this. How can you ever like show your face again? Well, as somebody pointed out today, you know, in terms of the, you know, there's a hashtag MeTube and uh, that, that if he'd been caught in his actual real world office doing this and female coworkers would have seen this, there's no question he'd be fired, right? He wouldn't be suspended. He wouldn't be taking a leave of absence to deal with personal issues. I mean, that would be it, right? Yes. So, I mean, it's, at least in, at okay. least in this era, you know, the, the pre the the list of things that media celebrities seem to have gotten away with in in the in the 
prior, even recent prior eras uh, are never cease to astonish me. But I think if this happened now and he were caught, um, uh, I think he would be dismissed summarily. Yes. No, the, it is interesting because, and this is always a sort of a, a sub question of, of of what you can survive. What is still a scandal? Um, I think it's still an open question whether or not, for example, a U.S. Senate candidate in I don't know uh, North Carolina um, can be caught having an extramarital affair, and whether that is a career-ending thing, or whether in this era we've moved the line so far down that that's no longer you know that that's no longer you know the 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 end of it. We'll, we'll find that out. But I think that. Jeffrey Tubin certainly pushed the envelope here, so to speak. I, but, I, I mean, know it's Oliver like, North. It's, yeah. You know, well, Oliver North is the person who took a career ending scandal and turned it into an almost successful run for Senate in Virginia um, and draped himself in the celebrity of the scandal. And yeah. Uh, you know, you always say that shamelessness is Trump's superpower. Uh, this was a proto example of that. And then he, you know, leveraged it to become a media celebrity in right wing circles and ultimately to uh, attempt a takeover of the NRA. Uh, I think, yeah. you know, if you're looking for people like where this idea that you can weather anything comes from. Uh, I do think a, you know, a part of that story is the way Oliver North refused to accept shame. No, that wasn't really one of them, but it wasn't a dick pick. So, I mean, that there's a little bit of a difference. I was thinking of Dick Morris. No, it was back a crime. Tech- yeah, no, it was an actual crime. Dick Morris sort of didn't actually ever come back. Um, there's a certain NFL quarterback from a very, very prominent Midwestern city who uh, did have a, you know, a, you know, texting his junk picture that apparently has not hurt his his standing. OK, so everybody can go take a shower now. OK. And so in answer to the question, you know, you're better than this. You're not going to talk about this. No, we're not better. than no, this. The, the, so, the second two thirds of the show were better than this. Yeah. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, the President of the United States making his closing uh, statement. Uh, we are two weeks from the election, amazingly or not. Does it seem, I, I was speculating in my newsletter today that it feels like time is really going slow now. Do you, are you experiencing that or are you? I'm experiencing it's, it's, simultaneous slowness and speed. You know, it's like yeah. with one hat on, you know, it's, oh my God, we have 14 more days. And yesterday there yeah. were, 15 more days. It's moving so slowly. And on the other hand, it does feel like just yesterday and a million years ago at the same time that it was four years ago and Trump was, uh, you know, we were dealing with the actual Hollywood tape and then the Comey letter. And then, so I, I like, I, it just depends what frame of mind I'm in, whether time is fast or slow. I completely understand that. That's that's the, the thing. Well, we're two weeks out, and the president's making his, his closing argument, attacking uh, Anthony Fauci, um, which is an interesting choice, uh, essentially making no secret of the fact that he's completely bored with the whole coronavirus thing, and um, replaying his greatest hits from 2016, um, but this time it's, it's not Hillary's emails, it's Hunter, 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 and he is absolutely obsessed with Hunter Biden, and he was on... Uh, to bring us all up today, he was on Fox and Friends this morning, and I want to play for you 
this little bit. Um, it, it's sort of become kind of old news that, that his signature line is lock him up, lock him up to the point where you almost need to step back and say, excuse me, do you understand that we're listening to the president of the United States on a regular basis calling for criminal investigations and the jailing of his political opponents and members of their family? Um, there was a time when we would have said things like that's not normal, uh, but apparently it has become normal. But this morning, he kind of, I would say, slightly escalated. Let's listen to him. One more on this Hunter Biden issue. Um, we've addressed it. The mainstream media and many on the left are calling this a Russian disinformation campaign. You addressed that. Many of the facts now, though, are being confirmed and authorized. And some are asking, will you appoint a special prosecutor to investigate this? In fact, 11 House Republicans um, have sent a letter. They said the following. We request that the Department of Justice immediately appoint an independent, unbiased special counsel to investigate these, these issues that have been raised, as well as any corresponding legal or ethical issues that might be uncovered from the former vice president's 47 years in public office. Will you be doing that? Will you be appointing a We've special prosecutor? We've got to get the attorney general to act. He's got to act. And he's got to act fast. He's got to appoint somebody. This is major corruption. And this has to be known about before the election. And by the way, we're doing very well. We're, we're going to win the election. We're doing very well. If you look at all of what's happening and all of the people that come in and don't come in, you take a look all around the country. And with Texas early voting, those are our votes, too. And we're doing well in Texas. I mean, I just got a report. We're doing great in Texas, but we're doing great all over. But forget that. This has to be done early. So the attorney general has to act. Well, Benjamin Witters, there you have the president of the United States telling his attorney general that he has to act and he has to act before the election. I have three things to say on the subject. One, please. Uh, a man of honor in Bill Barr's position following that resigns, uh, or at least publicly states that he will not do that and thereby triggers a crisis that may lead to his resignation. Uh, number two, I very much doubt Bill Barr will behave as a man of honor in this situation. Uh, and three, that leaves a situation in which the president has directly called for political reasons, overtly political reasons, because otherwise you don't have to do it before the election, for an investigation of frivolous matters related to his political opponent. And the attorney general has, at least so far, uh, not said that's unacceptable and I won't participate in it. And if you want a distillation uh, of the corrosion of uh, the relationship between the proper relationship between the president and the Justice Department, uh, in a nutshell, this is it. Uh, where is Bill Barr? by the way. He's, he's, he's basically gone to ground, it, it feels like. And clearly he has disappointed the president because you can tell that the president was hoping for a last minute October surprise, whether it was the, the, the Durham report or whether it is investigation of this. And Barr, who has shown an incredible willingness to twist the truth and to do Donald Trump's bidding, you know, up at least up until now, hasn't delivered for Donald Trump. Any thought what's what's going on right now? Has he just reached the limits of his sycophancy? Well, he may have reached the limits of the facts, right? So mm -hmm. it is relatively easy to say, 
I've appointed John Durham to look into X, right? But then when John Durham maybe comes back to you and says, I don't really have anything and I'm not going to have anything dramatic before the election, uh, you have a choice at that point. You can, you can either you know, go out in public and lie, right? And claim that John Durham has found things that in fact he hasn't found, or you can shut up. Right. Uh, conversely, you can appoint somebody uh, in Texas to look into the uh, um, to look into the so-called unmasking controversy. But when that person comes back to you and says, "Hey, there was nothing improper done here," which is what everybody knew from the beginning, uh, at least everybody who didn't have their uh, uh, wasn't living in a sort of Fox News fantasy. Um, when that person comes back and says, there's, there's not, nothing to see here, um, as the attorney general, you, can't, you just can't walk out and make up the facts found by an investigation. And so I think the easiest path is to just kind of go to ground. And I think what you've seen with Barr is a fair bit of that. It's relatively easy, recklessly, to announce that things are under investigation but it, it's actually a self-defeating, it's a perishable commodity because over time the investigations actually do wrap up and they wrap up without finding much significant. And what do you say then? And I think we've kind of reached that point with some of the investigations that Barr has announced. Okay, but it, it is conceivable though that in the next week, I'm trying to, 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 to game this out, Imagine a press conference at the Department of Justice where the attorney general says, um, we have not come up with any conclusions, but I am announcing that we are opening a, an investigation into um, you know, information that we've obtained from these, these laptops. He doesn't have to do any investigation. He, it would not be completed until long after the election is over. But wouldn't that give Donald Trump his last minute Comey announcement type thing at the very last moment? You know, in the last week of October, um, kind of forces the rest of the media to cover a story that they have been, I think, wisely uh, re reluctant to cover. I mean, how possible is that, that Bill Barr would say, OK, I don't have any facts here, but, but you know, what the hell? Why not open an investigation? So, first of all, I am not sure what even the predicate crime would be, right? So mm. I have made a point of not looking at any of these text messages or communications just because I, uh, I, I really don't believe in invading people's privacy like that needlessly. Um, so I'm, I'm not especially versed in what these are supposed to show. But as I understand it, they show uh, that years and years ago, Hunter, which we already knew that Hunter Biden was doing some work with Burisma and that at some point Joe Biden expressed uh, um, uh, concern for him and talked to, to him while he was in, a, in an addiction crisis. So what exactly uh, uh, is the matter that would be subject to investigation here? 
This is the thing that I'm struggling with, you know, listening to or or hearing about. I actually don't watch Fox News that much anymore. I can't take it. Um, But apparently every single news broadcast begins with, you know, the revelations from this. Exactly what are the revelations? Unless you distort the whole story, which, of course, they're prepared to do, of Joe Biden pushing for the firing of that prosecutor. Um, Is it Shokin? Is that the name? Yeah, Shokin. But we knew that. We knew that he was a corrupt prosecutor. It was the policy of the U.S. government of the EU to push and 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 bully Ukraine into getting rid of this corrupt prosecutor. There's nothing new about that. So if that's the predicate here, then they have nothing. But you know, again, it's the last days of the campaign, and the president. Uh, once hunter 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 but i thought it was interesting that he would go on and so overtly put pressure on his attorney general to use his office to criminally uh, investigate one of his opponents i mean this is you know, i do think you know. though that the right is kind of kidding itself on this one just uh you know the sort of merits of the investigation aside with hillary clinton and i you know i am not a particular hillary clinton partisan but with Hillary Clinton, uh, first of all, you had this was the candidate herself. And secondly, right. there is no question, uh, and I'm not a Hillary Clinton hater either, but Hillary Clinton did run an improper email server from her house on which the FBI had found a substantial portion of classified material. And so the, the core idea that she had done something wrong, or at least reckless, uh, was true, right? And, you know, yeah. you had this thing that you could work with that she had uh, screwed up. It played into a pattern that she had of playing fast and loose with some rules, I think mostly in fairly venial ways, but, you know, it played into a perception of her. Uh, by contrast, this is not the candidate. This is the candidate's son. It's the candidate's son whose sins, whatever they may be, pale in comparison to the sins of the children of the incumbent. Um, <laughs> and by the way, who uh, is being mocked in part for an addiction problem of a sort that millions of Americans have family members who've had similar uh, issues with. And so I, I, I understand that in the fever swamp, the idea that, you know, a late gotcha with, uh, with emails and text messages and a hacked computer uh, feels like this is 2016 all over again. But I just don't see why this is going to move anybody. I mean, assume assume it's all true and that Hunter Biden is a corrupt guy. Uh, no one's being asked to vote for Hunter Biden. Yeah, I am definitely not voting for um, either Hunter Biden for president or for uh, Antifa for president. I, I've decided that. Yeah. I'm, I'm willing to announce that today. No, no votes for Antifa or Hunter Biden. No, I, I agree. I, this is the kind of thing where it's sort of a, it, it's porn for the base, but I don't see that it moving anything. OK, so let's talk about the Supreme Court for a minute. And I don't want to get to Amy Coney Barrett, which is it is bizarre that we have gone this far in the conversation 
and not talked about it. But we did have a big case in the Supreme Court yesterday involving the election, one of the first big election cases, um, which and it's being touted as a win. They said they allowed Pennsylvania election officials to count the mail-in ballots uh, up to three days after the election day. This is a win for Democrats. It's a defeat for Republicans. Republicans had wanted to stop this pandemic-related procedure, which had been approved by the state's highest court. Um, but the vote was four to four. So it's not like the court ruled. The court is deadlocked. And as we know, that eight-member court is not going to stay eight members for some time. So give me your sense of this. Um, you had the conservatives on the court who sided with the Republicans and said, don't count those ballots if they come in late. And Chief Justice Roberts, uh, once again, sided with the liberals to make it a 4-4 deadlock. Yeah, so I think there's uh, something in here for everybody. Uh, first of all, to uh, it really does show that there are uh, election contest questions that will with reasonable certainty, uh, divide the justices ideologically with John Roberts as a kind of swing vote. Um, and that, you know, does suggest that there's a big difference between a court with yeah. Amy Coney Barrett on it and a court without Amy Coney Barrett on it. Uh, so if you're a Democrat, I think it is a, a or somebody who believes in more rather than less expansive voting rights in the context of the pandemic, uh, the short-term win is a pretty big deal because Pennsylvania is a voting mess and giving people a little bit more time to get votes in uh, is, a, uh, you know, is a good thing from your point of view. Uh, on the other hand, if you're uh, uh, looking at it from the point of view of what the court is going to look like after Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed, as it looks like she will be, uh, I think you can't count on wins like this uh, for much longer. As to the specific issue, I am not an expert on Pennsylvania voting rights law, and I actually don't know what I think. I, I, I therefore don't have an opinion on the merits right. of the thing other than believing in a generally more expansive uh, voter access set of rules. And so I'm sympathetic on policy terms to what the court did, but I don't know what Pennsylvania law has to say on the subject. Yeah. Okay. So there was another decision yesterday um, down in, in Texas, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, made a ruling um, on the, the, the practice of comparing signatures. So when you have an absentee ballot, what they will do is they will compare your signature to some other signature. And in many cases, uh, they will throw them out. They will throw out your ballot if they don't think the signatures match. And then they basically don't give you any chance to, to fix all of that. Um, so let me just make sure that I have this completely right. The appeals court hold to the lower court's injunction, uh, that would have required the Texas secretary of state to either advise local officials that mail-in ballots may not be rejected using the existing signature comparison process or require them to set up a notification system, giving voters a chance to challenge a rejection. So this was the decision issued by a judge Smith and, and the, leaving aside the arcane I issue here. This one sentence jumped out at me. Um, obviously, the courts have to balance out competing concerns. And this is what Judge Smith wrote for the Fifth Circuit. 
Texas's strong interest in safeguarding the integrity of its elections from voter fraud far outweighs any burden the state's voting procedures place on the right to vote, Smith wrote. That's an interesting statement because basically it says that the interest in protecting against voter fraud outweighs people's right to vote. I mean, is that the way the courts have been ruling? I mean, how how have the courts been balancing those two things? Yeah. Because, so, you know, I, I guess that would lead to, so in order to, to prevent 100 potentially fraudulent votes, we might take steps that would disenfranchise 100,000 other voters? Well, that is the core of the dispute, right? Um, yeah. Nobody, nobody disagrees in theory that the state is allowed to take some steps to protect the integrity of the vote, right? Um, nobody, you know, even people who say voter fraud is not a real problem don't say you should not have any voter registration and just let people wander in off the street and say, I'm eligible to vote, therefore give me a ballot, right? right. Um, mm -hmm. And conversely, nobody would... No, nobody would argue that you're allowed to, uh, you know, restrict the franchise only to uh, people who have blue check marks on Twitter, and therefore we have clear identity verification uh, that in order to prevent anyone from voting improperly. And so, really, the question comes down to how many people are you allowed to? you know, encumber their right to vote uh, in order to protect what against what level of hypothetical concern or real concern. Right. And, you know, the, the, the general posture of the courts uh, has been to be relatively deferential to states that want to create, you know, for example, voter ID laws. The Supreme Court has you know, upheld the idea of, of a voter ID. Um, uh, the, you know, the Supreme Court has largely said if a state says we have real concerns about voter identification, about voter fraud, we're going to defer to that uh, unless there's some, you know, real discriminatory uh, consequence mm -hmm. for doing so. Now, this is a, the passage that you read is a, uh, very stark articulation of that. And I think it's wrong. Um, you know, so the state's interest in preventing voter fraud cannot outweigh the inconvenience without some sense of how much right. fraud is anticipated or without how much sense of how much inconvenience is anticipated. And I think right now, in Texas anyway, the much greater threat to uh, the integrity of the vote is the possibility that large numbers of people aren't going to get to vote. You see these incredible lines. Uh, you have an overt policy by the governor of minimizing the number of uh, 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 early voting stations, in particularly in major urban counties. Um, and so I don't look at Texas right now and say the big concern is that large numbers of people are going to vote fraudulently. I look at Texas and say the big concern is that you're going to suppress the total number of voters. Yeah. 
So now, tell me whether you think this analogy is complete bullshit. But what I was thinking of when I when I read that sentence about the you know the the judge saying that the concern about you know election integrity far outweighs burdening the right to vote. You know, I'm, I'm moving this over again. This is this is an analogy, imperfect analogy. In the criminal law, we have had an assumption that it is better for one guilty person to go free than that. You know, uh, how does it go? That, it's well, better well, that a hundred guilty people go free yes, than that yes. one innocent person gets convicted. Exactly. That that's boy, thank you for for you know rescuing me from from that from that. Mainly because that look the 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 state's interest in in punishing guilty people does not outweigh the need to get to recognize the rights of of others. It does not outweigh that. And so I wonder whether in this particular case um, that would apply to voting. That that yes, they have an interest in preventing voter fraud. But the evidence suggests that voter fraud is incredibly small, it is incredibly rare, and we are talking about the possibility of massive disenfranchisement. Look, I think that's right. I think the, the, um, you're talking about relative risk here, and you're talking yeah. about also what the consequence of the risk coming to fruition is. And so let me, let's be blunt about this. If... If I am denied the right to vote, um, that is a big consequence for me. Yes. Um, conversely, if you are allowed to vote fraudulently in my state, that is a very minor consequence for any other individual voter. Uh, you know, it's uh, I'm I'm somewhere in the state of Virginia right now. So um, in Virginia, there are X number of million voters. Um, and if one person successfully votes fraudulently, the impact on everybody else's right to vote is really small. Now, if large numbers of people vote fraudulently, the impact becomes very big, of course, because then you could actually have a right. different yeah. aggregate result in the election. But that's a... That's a, you got to have a lot of fraudulent votes before that starts to be a real concern. So I guess my point is when you're talking about disenfranchising tens of thousands of people or some numbers of thousands of people, you're talking about a big democratic impact on each and every one of them, all to prevent very small numbers, if any, of fraudulent voters that in the state of Texas is not going to make any kind of difference. And so I think the, the, I think the, the point that, that the judge is making in that opinion is wrong both on the front end and on the back end. Okay, so let's talk about Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and I've mentioned this several times on the podcast. I think it's extraordinary that we are in the midst of this particular Supreme Court fight, and it seems so... It, it's so pushed so far into the background um, because it is so consequential. It will be so consequential for for decades. So, give me your sense of why this is so low key. This was the seat that everybody had circled. That you know, even during the Kavanaugh fight, people said, "Well, okay, this is intense. This is nasty. This is consuming." But it's nothing going to be you know compared to when uh, they you know if if Republicans try to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg because that totally flips the court. And yet here we are. It is Tuesday. The Judiciary Committee is going to vote on Thursday. 
And quite frankly, it doesn't appear to be in the top 10 stories right now. So what's going on? So it's low key for a few reasons. The first is that barring uh, intervention by the coronavirus, we know how it's going to come out. And there's, uh, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And so a whole lot of yelling about it actually doesn't change anything. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is that the both parties uh, prefer to be talking about something else. Uh, mm-hmm. Democrats prefer to be talking about Donald Trump, and Donald Trump prefers to be do- talking about Donald Trump uh, and all his various grievances. And so, you know, to make it a bigger deal. Uh, you'd have to have somebody who wants to talk about Amy Coney Barrett. And Democrats, by and large, I think, don't want to talk about her because they uh, it does run the risk of seeming to attack a uh, very competent and uh, 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 capable woman who... Uh, and likable. You know, and likable, you know, and v- very and very able as a, as a jurist and a scholar. And... Uh, Attacking people who are, uh, you know, kind of not the, not really ultimately the point is a uh, can be a very bad look, and it also distracts from uh, from from what they really want to focus on, which is the president. And the president, uh, you know, himself never talks about anything other than himself, and so um, you know, nobody's real interest, except in certain parts of the Republican base is to draw attention to Amy Coney Barrett and the Republican base uh, is spoken for in the election anyway. So I think those are kind of the reasons why it's uh, much more low key than any of us would have expected. I do think it'll be different when it gets to the Senate floor. And then there's the question of what kind of and how aggressively the Democrats deploy uh, delaying tactics or try to uh, and I think that could get uh, a little bit more fiery. But as long as it's a question of, you know, debating the person and particularly talking to her, uh, you know, nobody wants a repeat of the Brett Kavanaugh situation. Yeah. So where do you come down on the whole question of court packing? Because that's going to be hanging over all of this, particularly if we are, you know, going to the post-election period, 6-3 conservative majority or 5-4, depending on where Justice Roberts comes down. Um, that also seems to have died down because there was a there was a cycle, there was a news cycle in which everybody was Joe Biden has to you know state his opinion on that. My sense is Joe Biden is not a fan of court packing. He doesn't support court packing. It doesn't mean that he can't be dragged into it. But where do you come down on that? So I wrote a book more than 10 years ago now, I believe in 2006, um, uh, arguing against constitutional hardball in the judicial nominations and confirmation process. And uh, I argued for a restrained Senate approach, having been appalled by the treatment of the Senate, by the Senate of Bill Clinton's nominees and then appalled by the treatment by the Senate of George W. Bush's nominees. Um, And and I still believe in principle that the right answer to this question is 
for everyone to stand down and back off and develop and respect a set of norms about how we treat confirmations. I observe, however, that I have never lost a public debate more decisively and completely than I lost this one. Uh, And in fact, the rule that both parties respect is that the party in power uses all of its power. And under those circumstances, um, I oppose court packing. I think it's a bad idea. I think it will be bad for the Senate. I think it will be bad for the court. I think it is a bad thing. Uh, I also oppose forcing through a nominee under these circumstances. I oppose forcing through, uh, preventing Merrick Garland from getting confirmed. I opposed the use of the filibuster and blowing up the filibuster for judicial nominations. I oppose every step along the way. And I observe that my views on the subject have been given their due deference, the deference they are apparently due by the Senate. And I expect, fully expect the, uh, answer on court packing to be the same, all of which is a way of saying that I don't think it's a good thing, but I totally understand that nobody is seeking my opinion on the subject. Yeah, no, I I, I can identify with this. Um, we, we had a form a, a club, the Coalition of the Irrelevant here. Uh, <laughs> but in, 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 in Sun Tzu's uh, On War, he specifically warns against making your opponents too desperate um, because... And but this seems to be the new cultural norm. I mean, the political norm, which is that if you have the power to do something, you should do it, and you should do it fast. You should do it hard, regardless of the consequences. And then that spirals into this sort of uh, this sort of tit for tat, because you know there's going to be tremendous pressure not only to increase the size of the court, but to uh, make Puerto Rico and D.C. states, which means when the Republicans get in charge, we will have the new state of the new free state of uh, North Alabama or, you know, Western Nebraska or whatever. Um, by the way, congratulations. Uh, you um, at Lawfare published uh, After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency. It's a book by Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, who came on the podcast. And I see that uh, President Barack Obama is tweeting about it. Indeed. It's so kind of, can, it's kind of cool when, a book, when a book that you've published about how the future president should respond to the for the current president gets retweeted by a gets tweeted by a former president. It's kind of cool. Thank you. Um, I, it, it, I I do think that uh, just on on the um, on the point about uh, endless cycles of warfare, I do think that point is properly directed at this stage most to Mitch McConnell. That is, you know. If the Democrats come in and they say, uh, we need to do this because two Supreme Court seats were stolen from us, they're not wrong, you know, and the, th- there was an off-ramp available to everybody here. And, you know, at what point in the cycle you say, hey, it's so-and-so's obligation to break the cycle, I think is a very hard question. And just to be clear, I am a firm supporter of statehood for both Puerto Rico, if it wants it, Mm -hmm. and D.C., which unambiguously wants it. And where I live, um, for reasons having nothing to do with partisan politics, but because it is shameful that D.C. residents don't have the vote, and it is also shameful that 3 million people in Puerto Rico don't have 
uh, national voting rights. And the shame of that really became visible during the hurricane where, you know, basically nobody represented them. And so I do think the merits case for those is very, very strong. You know, now that you mentioned, I, I, I don't, I don't disagree with you about all of that. Um, there, there's nothing fixed in the number of, just like there's no constitutional uh, number fixed for uh, Supreme Court justices. There's no fixed number of states. Uh, when a lot of the folks uh, are, who are in the United States Senate um, were were born, we had what? We had only forty-eight states. So um, that that can change. I Benjamin Wittes, thank you. The history yeah. of admitting states for purely partisan reasons is pretty long. I mean, you know, uh, the North, North and South Dakota are separate states because Republicans wanted a couple extra senators. And so if you divided the Dakota territory in half before you admitted them, you got a couple extra Republicans. It's not, this is not the the craziest thing in the world for parties to do when thinking about admitting new states. No, and it's going to be a debate because, you know, particularly if, if we do, you know, drift into an era of uh, sustained minority rule, that there are only a few possible remedies for it. And this would be one of them. So uh, Benjamin Wittes, thank you for coming back on the podcast two weeks before the election. We will have to have you on after the apocalypse again. Great. To, great to talk to you, Charlie. And, and, and by the way, all of you, if, if you have your, uh, your, your laptop computers at, at home, you just take one of those little post-it notes and everything and you put it over the camera, just go over the camera lens. It's just a, a generally good idea. I mean, if you have a Zoom call, you can take it off. But then once you're done with a Zoom call, you, you can put the thing just back over the camera. Just this, this is life advice. For this us. episode of the Bulwark podcast is brought to you by pants. Wear them. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do something like this all over again, just 14 days until election day.